Greetings and salutations from Times Square, Crossroads of the World. This is the Muni Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Today is Thursday, October 3rd, and welcome to the show. I'm going to introduce our, our participants and their respective stories. We're going to we have a head of res, municipal research, Greg Clark, and based in San Juan, Ava Lorenz, who will be discussing the long-awaited uh, FOMB uh, proposed plan of adjustment. And we've got not but one, but two stories by Patrick Ferguson, a double dose of Patrick today. You'll be discussing the latest on PG&E uh, selling hydroelectric plant, and also um, and a trend of, of low school enrollment uh, decline. Mm -hmm. And finally, we'll go to Miami and Simone Barabo with the U.S. Virgin Islands Water and Power Authority, or better known as WAPA, and their plethora of problems. So welcome, everybody, and let's get started. So Ava, how are you doing in San Juan there today? Well, everything is fine. All right. So we finally have the FOMB, which is known as, which is the acronym for the Financial Oversight and Management Board, finally have their proposed plan of adjustment we've been waiting for. Can you explain the jet debt adjustment plan? Yes, uh, the debt adjustment plan reduces the Commonwealth debt, which is currently 35 billion total liabilities, to by more than 60% uh, to 12 billion. And it also reduces other debt uh, and provides for other cuts. For instance, the as uh, there, uh, there will be a 36% reduction for geo bonds issued before 2012. That's because the ones that were issued in 2012 and 2014 have been challenged about six billion in total, and those will have a higher cut. There's also a 28% reduction for holders of public building authority bonds that were also issued before 2012. And in the case of employee retirement systems bonds, those are, will get a cut of 87%. Uh, the settlement offers also, um, the, the, I mean, the uh, debt adjustment plan offer also offers a settlement for uh, bondholders whose bonds have, have been challenged. For instance, those geo bonds from 2014 uh, for 2012 and 2014 will get a 55 more or less percent reduction. And, um, the bonds that have been challenged, those public building authority bonds that have been challenged are after 2012 will get a 42% reduction. And that's pretty much in a nutshell uh, what the debt adjustment plan is. So how do you think Puerto Ricans feel about this debt adjustment plan? Well, um, the governor has said she supports it only because it, it significantly cuts the debt and because she wants to respect an agreement reached between the committee, official committee of retirees and the financial oversight and management board. The, um, the most of the opposition locally is because the plan proposes to cut pensions by 8.5%, but not all of the pensions, the pensions that will get cut are those that are uh, more than $1,200 a month. 
Uh, the governor has said she opposes on, on principle uh, cuts to the pension, but she said that she says that she wants to respect the agreement reached between the board and the official committee of retirees. However, a lot of teachers and, of course, judges, retired judges, are opposing the plan. Teachers will be especially hurt by these cuts because the plan says once they retire, they would get the equivalent of about 40% of their current salary as retirement. Right now, as it is, they get 75%. In the case of the just judges, of course, they lose benefits, but also the judges are arguing that their pension is set up by the Constitution and it's not supposed to be touched. That is basically it. Um, of course, many retirees do not want to see any more cuts to their pensions. However, plan does say that if there is a specific year in which, the, in which there is a surplus, the government will reinstate the, the cut that was made. So, so not every year they will be getting cuts. Uh, and of course, uh, the plan also calls for a pension a pension reserve fund, which means that the pensions for future retirees will be insured. They will always be paid. So that those are the significant things about the pensions. And that's about it in terms of uh, how local people feel about this debt adjustment plan. Well, let's go back to the creditors. I know, like you said, the teachers association are opposed to it. So is a, a bond insurer. How do you, let's see what else are the creditors saying about this? The creditors, for the most part, have remained silent. Golden Tree, for instance, uh, they own about 1.5 billion, more or less, in general obligation bonds, and they have they have declined to comment. That is usually a sign that uh, they are not very happy with the adjustment plan. Assured uh, has come out against it and their contention is that this step adjustment plan was not negotiated in consensus and it was more or less negotiated behind closed doors and of course that the documents that the financial oversight and management were used to prepare this plan do not rely on accurate information and that uh, they have also engaged in criticism of the financial oversight board in terms of the fact that, that the board has issued several uh, fiscal plans over the past couple of years and they believe they, the board has not done a good job at cutting more from the government. One last question, Ava. What do you think will happen uh, going forward with this plan? I know it's up to the courts, correct? Yes. Um, well, the court will decide whether the plan is a reasonable one. Uh, that that is basically what Promesa says. They, of course, they, uh, I'm sure that Judge Swain will uh, hear what the creditors and the other people have to say about the plan, because people will have to submit motions talking about it and trying to get do discovery on this plan. So she will obviously listen to all of that, and, but the standard will be where, whether it is going to be uh, reasonable. Of course, another criticism that has been made is whether Puerto Rico will be able to pay this debt along with all the other restructurings, whether all of that together will be sustainable uh, for the island. But I don't think uh, Judge Swain will uh, take probably take that into account. 
of course, this plan, my my belief is, is probably going to be changed. It's probably going to, some of the terms will probably change. But in the end, I think uh, the judge will agree with it. All right. Well, thanks, Eva. I'm sure you'll keep us up to date on the latest and go, on what's going on there. So let's bring it mm-hmm. over to uh, Greg Clark here in New York. And Greg, yesterday you posted an analyst snapshot, which I should remind our listeners to check out on DebtWire.com, and you uh, go into more detail about the proposed plan, comparing it to uh, previous plans. Give us your take. Yeah, what we decided to do was to put some of the proposed recovery levels uh, that are in the latest plan of adjustment in perspective. First, we compared the uh, proposals to settlements that have already been made for the Puerto Rico Sales Tax Corporation, known to most of our listeners as COFINA, and the Government Development Bank of Puerto Rico, GDB for short. Uh, It's kind of interesting that historic and proposed recoveries might have surprised anyone who studied Puerto Rico's debt structure prior to the FOMB's creation in 2016. So Greg, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by that. Can you elaborate further? Yeah, for instance, GDB bonds that defaulted were unsecured and normally would not be treated well in bankruptcy. And general obligation bonds, GO bonds, supposedly had a, quote, first claim on available Commonwealth resources, end quote, provided by Puerto Rico's constitution, which resulted in a fair number of investors becoming adamant that their bonds would be paid first and that they'd have full recovery. Unfortunately for them, they were mistaken. The reality so far, as Ava discussed, has been much different. The GDB bonds, the recovery rate was 55%. There are two types of COFINA bonds, senior and sub. The senior bond recovery was 93%, and the subordinate bond recovery was 56%. And then there's a split between GO bonds issued before 2012. Uh, that's a 64% recovery. After 2012, 35 to 45%. Uh, The PBA bonds we discussed, those are 72% if issued before 2012, 58% if issued after. And the employee retirement system bonds, uh, the prospective recovery rate for those is only 13% apart. I noticed uh, that you distinguish between the GEO bonds and the PBA bonds issued before and after 2012. Why is that? Well, the, uh, the FOMB is alleging that the bonds issued after 2012 for the GOs and PBAs were or are invalid and that they should never have been issued because they violated Puerto Rico's debt limits. So the bondholders of those bonds, the post-2012 bonds, can either litigate and risk losing their uh, position or uh, If they win, they would be on a par with the pre-2012 bondholders, but if they lose, they'll be worse off. So that's the the gamble that they might take. So how do these recovery bonds compare to treatment of bonds and pensioners under the, let's say, traditional Chapter 9 bankruptcies? Well, a couple of years ago, we did some research into some of the better-known Chapter 9 bankruptcies, Detroit, Stockton, California, San Bernardino, California. And we found that uh, Detroit bondholders, general obligation bondholders, recovered 74% of principal. 
Stockton lease revenue bond holders, they didn't have any GO bonds, uh, recovered from 18% to 100% of principal. The 18% was an outlier, I think, that those obligations financed a golf course. And San Bernardino lease revenue obligations were unimpaired. And uh, we also found that pensioners were treated well. In Detroit, uh, the, the uh, settlement was 95 to 100% of uh, pension payments, although there was some COLA, cost of living uh, allowance cutbacks there. And in Stockton and San Bernardino, those uh, pension payments were unimpaired. What conclusions do you draw from this? Well, it's clear that in municipal bankruptcies to date, whether on the mainland or in Puerto Rico, holders of pension obligation debt tend to be treated much less favorably than those that hold GO or lease revenue debt. And pensioners, those who receive pensions, as opposed to those who hold pension obligation bonds, are treated best of all. This situation's, I think, likely to continue until if and when a court rules that pension cuts should approximate those experienced by bondholders. This kind of court decision seems unlikely with the result that public employees will continue to have little incentive to cooperate with borrowers' efforts to stay solvent. And with the reductions in Puerto Rico's liabilities that will result from all of its restructurings, what's the long-term outlook for the Commonwealth? Well, although the debt reductions proposed in the plan of adjustment would significantly decrease the Commonwealth's fixed costs, as Ava mentioned, it's far from assured that other conditions are in place to ensure Puerto Rico's economic recovery. The FOMB's fiscal plan of May 2019 notes that the biggest barrier to hiring in Puerto Rico is the Commonwealth's lack of at-will, quote-unquote, employment, which is a policy in 49 of 50 states. There's also the likelihood that the 4% excise tax imposed on foreign corporations under what's known as Act 154 may not last much longer. There is continued evidence of political corruption, and there's a lack of internal financial controls, as evidenced by the heavily qualified and late audited financial statements that Puerto Rico produces. Well, thanks very much, Greg. Thank you, Ava, for both your continued coverage on Puerto Rico. We'll keep tabs on that for on the ongoing for this uh, proposed plan of adjustment. All right, let's move on to Patrick. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Haven't heard, you for, haven't heard from you in a while. It's been a while. Okay. So let's talk about your story on PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, and they got approval recently from the CPUC. Mm -hmm. The California Public Utilities Commission, yeah, gave them a PG&E, the green lights this week to sell a reservoir and powerhouse called Deer Creek, and they're going to sell it to the Nevada Irrigation District. Uh, the Deer Creek project lies outside of Nevada City, but northeast of Sacramento. And the price tag, a whopping $1. Wow, what a bargain. Yeah. <laughs> so going through, so uh, I was looking at a consultancy. They estimated the value of the reservoir and powerhouse at a negative $7 million. So that study was done in December of last year. Uh, but on its books, PG&E will write down or take about a $30 million loss. So the reason why uh, PGE is moving to, to offload uh, these assets, just, this is, we have an aging, as part of its profile uh, uh, portfolio of aging infrastructure, this uh, reservoir and dam um, came into operations in 1908, and it's uh, part of a series of uh, dams and reservoirs up there in uh, Northern California. 
Let me ask another question. Are there any more hurdles to this uh, process? Yes. Yeah, so the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the Northern District of California has to approve the sale. Um, also, the Federal Regulatory, uh, sorry, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission or FERC will have to approve a license or a license separation. So PG&E uh, now has a license to operate those assets, and that's combined with its uh, other assets in the uh, in the area. So they're going to have to separate those. Uh, also, interesting enough, if we take if we look back at when PG&E filed for bankruptcy in January of this year, there was a bit of a standoff uh, between the bankruptcy court and uh, FERC over who has the authority or concurrent authority over uh, PG&E's uh, power purchase agreements and some of their assets and, and their, um, so I don't know, so this doesn't seem, I don't know if this will trigger some more um, discussion around that because PG&E fully owns these assets. Um, but it was interesting to see if, uh, if a FERC will uh, just approve these. So speaking of assets, so are there any more asset sales on the way for PG&E? Yeah, so PG&E has, has proposed selling its Narrows hydroelectric projects for about $4.5 million to the Yuba County Water Agency. Uh, the CPUC is scheduled to take that up next week. Uh, the Sacramento Municipal Utility District uh, is reported by local media to be seeking to, uh, the purchase of the Chili Bar power plants, which is also a, a series of dams and powerhouses. Uh, that sale is estimate, estimated to be a bit over $10 million. And, uh, it's, and we've also seen the proposal from the city of San Francisco, which proposed buying PG&E's assets in the city uh, for about $2.5 billion. PG&E has, has since come out saying it's not really interested. Um, and then we know the San Joaquin Irrigation District has also proposed to bind uh, local grid systems in uh, Manceta, Ripon, and Escalon in California. But we see that PG&E, they have a, a number of these smaller, older assets of dams, hydroelectric plants, and uh, it, would, it would seem uh, fitting for them to maybe divest some of those because uh, um, a lot of these are the aging, these aging assets are becoming more costly to operate, maintain, and this is also in the environment of lower energy prices. Very interesting. All right. Well, thank you, Patrick. And hold on there. We're going to come back for you for another story and hope our listeners are holding on too. We are halfway there. So we're going to move on to Miami. Simone, how are you down there? Doing well. All right, let's talk about the U.S. Virgin Islands, which is, how far is that from you? You're in Miami. It's not too far, I guess. It's a plane ride. I, I don't know. <laughs> okay. That's a good question. Too far to swim. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about the WAPA, the Water and Power Authority. I heard there was a hearing about them earlier this week. What's going on there? In a nutshell, everything that could be going wrong is going wrong. They're cash-strapped, the body that oversees rates in the territory, doesn't want to raise rates. There are consistent power outages. There was even a brief power outage at the hearing discussing wow. what's going wrong with this authority. No one wants to pay for more power because they're not consistently getting power. They had $2 million stolen from them through a wire fraud. They provide water as well. It's the Water and Power Authority, but in some cases, the, the water isn't potable. Like People can't drink it. There's a tense relationship with the legislature. They had to be subpoenaed to be there. There's a tense relationship with other government agencies. The government recently garnished Medicare payments from hospitals and others and diverted those payments to the Water and Power Authority to pay the, their back unpaid electric bills. 
The head of the Public Service Commission, which is the body that sets the rate, described them as in an ongoing crisis. I mean, there's a whole litany of problems there. How did it all come down to this? It's been a lot of things. At the hearing, WAPA blamed Hurricane Maria, Hurricanes Maria and Irma, which devastated the territory in 2017. Sales since then have plummeted as people have left or turned to generators. They're down about 16%. They also had a really terrible track record in terms of estimating costs. They're working on moving to propane units. They have moved to some. And they had a contract with a company called uh, Vital to put those units in for about $87 million. That ended up costing them $160 million. And they haven't been able to satisfy the Public Service Commission with the reasons for the cost overruns. So there's a hearing today, and this could change. But as of now, the Public Service Commission doesn't want to raise the rates to cover the difference which they financed through Vital at a 12% interest rate over 10 years. They've been locked out of the bond market since Hurricane Maria, and even before then, they were really, really struggling to issue debt. I mean, it was taking them forever to issue debt. It's also just not an easy job. In the mainland, we have interconnected electric grids, but when their grid goes out, it just goes out. They can't you know, tie up to me in Florida or, or to Ava in Puerto Rico's grid. It's, it's just too far away. So how long have they been able to stay afloat for this long? Well, they've had a couple of brief reprieves. There's a three cent emergency surcharge that's set to expire and a contractor allowed them to put off payments for a little while. One of their big problems was government agencies paying late and now even if it's because of a garnishment, pretty much everyone is up to date. But those are temporary or else they're one-time measures and they need something longer term to get their footing. Now, Simone, what could, let's say, longer-term measures look like for them? Well, WAPA has been looking for a base rate increase. They're not immediately trying to raise rates, which are almost double those of Puerto Rico, and Puerto Rico's rates are already hurting the economy. They're basically trying to change the rate structure to lower the portion that tracks fuel and to raise the base rate. So overall, the rate would be the same, but people would get no benefit from having fuel costs having dropped recently. And when fuel costs go back up, that will be passed through to consumers. So eventually the rates will probably rise. Well, speaking of rates, other than raising them, the the, the base rates, which looks, it's not gonna be a slam dunk. Has WAPA suggested possibly any other solutions? Not really. They called on lawmakers to do other things as well. They want them to lobby so that the Virgin Islands doesn't have to pay a match for FEMA funds and they want a greater percentage of the $2 billion in HUD funds that are set aside for the USVI and Puerto Rico and ask lawmakers to lobby for that. They want to refinance that $160 million lease I mentioned with Vital with the USDA, which would mean they'd pay over a longer term and the interest rate would fall to about 3% from its current 12%. But even for that, they need the base rate increase because the USDA is demanding a senior lien and they can't do that without additional funds. And the Public Service Commission has been really reluctant to raise rates. There's a meeting today, which I mentioned before, and anything could happen, but it's not hard to understand their reticence. They say they haven't been given a satisfactory answer for why the Vital contract nearly doubled in price. People are already paying a lot for 
unreliable electricity and raising rates is unpopular. One of the board members has said there's really nothing that would get him to raise rates beyond what they currently are, and he offered to resign during the hearing. They have an alternative proposal, the Public Service Commission, which is that the legislature should give them greater regulatory power over WAPA. Obviously, this isn't popular with WAPA. PSC, the Public Services Commission, says all they can do is set rates. They can't make WAPA do with the money what they said they were going to do. And that's a problem, the commission argues, because it used to be that WAPA would come to them with a specific financing plan, and if they agreed with it, they'd raise the rates to fund it. Now WAPA just uses cash on hand for immediate payments and basically said, this is what we've done, now you fund it. And there have been cases, not recent, but over the last couple of decades, where WAPA tells them they're buying one thing and then buys something else and then comes back asking for additional money. All right, Simone, I got one last question for you. Do you think they're going to be able to survive without, let's say, restructuring? There's talk about restructuring at this point. Not in the meeting this week, but at least one lawmaker has called for restructuring, and the legislature has put aside some funds in this year's budget to pay for consultants on a possible restructuring. One lawmaker said that the Virgin Islands government should just subsidize the authority for a couple of years to let them get back on their feet. But the question there is, with what money? The Virgin Islands obviously has its own financial problems. There's a retirement system that's about to run out of cash. They have chronically underfunded hospitals. So it's a hairy situation for sure. Okay. Thank you so much, Simone, in Miami. All right. Let's finish it off. Back to you, Patrick, in New York. Welcome back. Back again, <laughs> finally. Well, a long time no here. Let's talk about schools. It's October. My kids, like a lot of other kids, are back in school. Now, you wrote an interesting story about how there's actually some school designations where are suffering with a decline in enrollment. So what's happening overall with that? Yeah, September is about 50 million uh, students, kids went back to school this uh, this year. And uh, yeah, student in some of the largest metropolitan areas in the country, student uh, enrollment has continued to decline, even though the number of students is incre- increasing. So in, Los, in the Los Angeles school district, enrollment has been declining for more than 10 years. Uh, researching this, I was talking with William Frey. He's a demographer and a senior analyst at the Brookings Institute. And he said, among the nation's uh, 381 metros, 214 showed losses in their child populations uh, last year in 2018. He quote, I think many school districts need to be prepared for slower growth or declines in their enrollments. And so the reason why this is, this is so important is that many districts uh, receive funding from the their respective state governments based on the number of students or the average daily rate of attendance. So this so this is troubling for, for schools as they see their financial resources decline, and then they would have to cut back on teachers, staffing. Um, this isn't, it's not an easy task when a lot of these school districts face uh, higher salary costs, um, higher staffing costs. It's not easy to sell 5% of a school building, you know, they have to reshuffle things. And then, of course, we know as a lot of the school districts um, continue to deal with uh, rising pension and, and, and OPEB costs, which is a completely different topic. <laughs> it's, a whole, it's a whole podcast right there. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you, uh, 
basically, um, you know, other factors that contribute to why enrollment is falling? Yeah, so there's a, there's a few factors. You know, a lot of people point to charter schools as the main culprits, and this is true. We've right. seen a, a lot of students move to charter schools, but even accounting for all the students that go to charter schools, we just we see a decline in the overall population of students uh, in these large urban centers, a lot of them. So even in Los Angeles County has been gaining people and has a, has a growing population, has had a growing population over the last decade, even though the students have declined. In the in Philadelphia, in the Philadelphia School District, enrollment has fallen by more than 24% over the past 10 years, uh, even though its population has increased by 3.8% during that time frame. So I was talking to this demographer and, and different people were saying, well, why 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 are these students uh, why are there less children in the, in the cities now and so we were talking about the financial crisis uh, the millennial generation you know that came maybe it was in their 20s when the financial were younger when the financial crisis hit and we saw this movement uh, towards cities uh, people moving into cities and this is despite Colin look this is like one of the few or only times we've seen an increase and growth the population of, of cities more than the suburbs. So since the 1950s, since the people started using cars, we've seen uh, growth in uh, populations in suburbs. But for a brief moment after the financial crisis, after we saw cities really take on a lot of growth. But now that trend is reversed. So maybe, so maybe it's them. So maybe it's that trend going to the suburbs. Maybe it's millennials um, delaying having families. They have uh, um, high high debt levels and also high housing costs. We see places like. Uh, lot, you know, Los Angeles especially and a lot of these cities on the coast um, just uh, have really high housing costs which is, deters um, people from raising their families there. Well, millennials, either they get the blame or they get the credit. <laughs> so let's look at the flip side. Are there any districts seeing an increase instead? Yeah, so I was looking I mean, mainly at California just because there's so many large school districts there. Um, but I was looking at the forecast from the Department of Finance for the, and they, they forecast the different student populations out, out, out 30 years. Um, so all of mostly all Oakland, Sacramento, San Francisco, Los Angeles, all they have forecast all declines in the student populations. But we saw increases in small counties, so like Kern County, Sutter County, Tamaha, or these school the school districts there, which I thought was interesting. So maybe uh, we'll actually see some growth in the uh, in kind of I don't want to say rural, but smaller areas, smaller metropolitans. All right. Well, thank you very much, Patrick. Interesting article. Thanks again to Ava Lorenz, Simone Barabo, and Greg Clark here in New York, and also to our podcasting team, Anthony and Stephanie. But most of all, thank you to our listeners for uh, tuning in t today, and hopefully uh, we'll see you again next week. Have a good day, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Muni Lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to DebtWire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.